Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the M&A Mastermind Podcast, your go-to source for all the latest industry trends, strategies to help you level up your M&A practice. I am your host, Nick Olson, Managing Director of Cornerstone International Alliance, a group of lower middle market M&A firms. Uh, here, we bring in masterminds who are experienced, knowledgeable, and gracious enough to share how they have succeeded in the world of M&A. Today's guest, I'm really excited about, um, and the topic we're going to discuss he is my second consecutive guest from the great country of Canada. Um, he earned his master's degree in business from Lancaster University Management School in the United Kingdom. He's a world traveler, having visited over 30 countries, and I would assume and counting. Uh, he does a lot of volunteer work in his community of Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, Canada. He's very active. You can typically find him at a CrossFit box where he is getting his lift on. He enjoys camping with his family. As an active member of Cornerstone International Alliance, please welcome my guest today, Jeff McKenzie. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on, Nick. Appreciate it. Still, you still, you still doing CrossFit? A little bit these days. The uh, yeah, I have uh, three kids at home now who are doing everything they can to keep me out of it, uh, keep me occupied, but still trying to make it there. And congratulations to you and your wife on your third. Uh, your third baby recently, so I'm sure that uh, it doesn't uh, help your gym time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, we just welcomed another one a couple weeks ago, so I'm still in the, uh, if you notice some bags or anything under my eyes, it's just a little sleep deprived uh, these days, but we're getting through it. It's all good. Yeah. Um, well, today's topic um, I'm really excited about, and, you know, with Cornerstone International Alliance being a group of firms, you know, who are cross borders. Um, it's always a topic of conversation, uh, you know, how we can work together collaboratively. And sometimes, whether it's a barrier or it's an opportunity, um, doing an MA deal across, you know, country borders is not always the easiest thing to do. And we're here to talk about a deal that you had led recently for Confederation MA that ended up being. A cross border deal. I don't know that it was in the initial plans, which we'll dive into in a little bit. Hmm. But, um, you you inevitably closed a deal. Um, sport was that your first and only, or have you done more? No, so it was our first and only. And to, to answer your point, there it is. It really wasn't in the plans. It, uh, it we weren't actively prospecting. Uh, you know, sell side clients in Europe. This one kind of just fell on our lap and uh well i say fell on our lap but it was really through relationships and referrals built up over time uh how it came about but yeah it was our it was our first okay well let's dive in why don't we set, why don't you set the stage for us um as yeah. much information as you can talk about i know there's a lot of uh confidentiality that we always work under and so yeah talk about this this opportunity that you came across how did you prospect the client you know industry um, all that sort of fun stuff that go into you know, getting a client up and running on the deal. Yeah, we first, uh, when I said it fell in our lap, uh, you know, maybe not the most accurate way to describe it because it, it was really one of the questions I got asked most often on this transaction was just that point. It's how does a Canadian M&A firm wind up working with a company over in Europe? And, uh, and you know, why, why are you guys working with them? So. Uh, you know, first first of all, although the company was headquartered in Europe, uh, they had really strong North American presence. So there was that connection that they have, you know, offices and doing uh, lots of work in Canada and the United States. So there was that connection. But 
really the, the quick story summarized on how this came about to us in the first place is uh, we have, uh, it's all through relationships, referrals, like a lot of the business, but we have a longstanding good relationship with a, a consultant here in Atlanta, Canada, where we're based. And uh, they focus a lot of their time in the equipment manufacturing space and have done tons of work between North America and Europe over the years. And going back about 15 years ago, when our clients started their business, uh, they, they, they met this client, uh, you know, through, through their consulting work and saw that they had a really great product and technology that wasn't yet in North America. And in working with some of their clients in North America, they saw a great opportunity to uh, introduce that technology. And so in the early days of this company, which is based in Austria, uh, getting going, uh, our relationship with this uh, consultant, um, the work he was doing, he, he really helped them get off the ground in North America and help them grow their business here. So, you know, fast forward 15 years later, um, you know, they, they've kept a good relationship uh, with with uh, clients in Austria and uh, and they got talking about, you know, I think the time has come in their corporate history to uh, they were looking for a growth partner. So this wasn't a retirement play. It was really looking for uh, a strategic investor to come in, you know, lend some capital resources and help really take them to the next level. Uh, they were more or less in a conversation about, you know, what options should we consider when we're looking for a partner? And uh, that's when our name sort of got dropped in the, in the hat that, uh, you know, the, the consultant, his name's Chris, uh, said, you know, there's just, there's an M&A company in Atlanta, Canada, uh, you know, I know located far away from you guys, but that does work in this space. Why don't you have a conversation with them and, and talk to them about how that process looks and how the journey goes. And I remember when they first made the referral to us, uh, I, I, my first reaction was almost to discount it as a, as a uh, possible engagement, just because most of our work is here in North America, as you know, and not every day that opportunities you know, on the other side of the pond come up. So, so we, we, yeah, great. We'll meet with them. And, uh, you know, I'd say very early kind of hit it off with the clients just in terms of, we really like them. Uh, they seem to like us. Uh, we went over and met with them, uh, really hit it off in person. We were just one, one of, we, we also knew we were just one of a few companies or, or more being considered as their advisors. Uh, so we're really, uh, I would say in an underdog position that, uh, we wanted our name to be in the hat and be in the mix, but uh, maybe didn't expect that, uh, just speaking honestly, that they might be going with a North American firm because on the surface, there's a lot of reasons why a European M&A firm may make more sense to advise. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, long story short, we were very pleased that they did want to go with us. I think they felt good chemistry and uh, trust factor was there. There was, I, I think the referral, this is kind of the power of referrals too, that the fact that somebody with a 15 year history and a trusting relationship was able to kind of go to bat for us and say, listen, we've, we've done work with this organization before they'll, uh, they'll do everything they can to represent you in you know, in your best interests. I think that carried a ton of weight and really gave us that edge to get, to get the engagement. So, so yeah, that was back in, uh, I guess early 2022, uh, kicking off uh, about two years ago when that first got rolling. Actually, if you hit on it, and um, I want to kind of go backwards uh, just quickly on because you guys gaining uh, 
client in Austria is doesn't seem like a common practice, right? And like I said, it's your first and one and only at this point. But hit on, and we talk a lot on this on this on this podcast uh, show about referral sources and those being you know very important. And and obviously this is a, a very you know telltale sign as to how referral sources can bring you business. Um, and that's how you guys got this this client. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I would say nowadays, you know, referrals either through past business owners that we worked with or through professional advisors, which it was in this case, it was a, you know, consultant who had done work with who became our client uh, are, are, are important. And, and I think that maybe a lesson there is uh, you have to be patient in this game because this was a relationship that the seeds were planted 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, just as the business was getting going, really, and it wasn't until 15 years later that the business had reached a point in their growth trajectory that they were looking to turn the chapter and bring on an investor. So you never know when some of those relationships will end up paying off and coming back around. But really, yeah, it uh, reinforces the importance of referrals for sure. I appreciate explaining the process, how that came to be. But um, from your perspective, you know, what was going through your head thinking like, okay, now I got to lead this this deal that's based in Austria, I'm here in Canada, um, you know, what's going through your mind at that point? Yeah, yeah, to be honest, I was I was concerned about it and maybe even a little bit skeptical about how we were going to pull that off because aside from, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit later, but aside from some regulatory and technical differences and, you know, how deals flow and structured, yes, there's a lot of similarities, but there are some differences, which... Uh, it was a bit of a you don't know what you don't know until you got into it. Um, but there was also some really practical challenges, I would say, of, you know, although I'm on the east coast of Canada, so I'm closer to Europe, I'm still five hours off from our clients. So there's the time zone challenges uh, there, although everybody's, uh, you know, for the most part speaks English and or multiple languages, the main, uh, you know, day to day language is German. Uh, I don't speak German. Oh, so there was that. And then uh, just the with the distance and the travel time is, uh, you know, although, yes, you can do a lot of virtual work these days and hop on you know, calls like we're on today. Uh, there's still the power of that in-person connection on, on, on files, especially, you know, the work we do. You're dealing with somebody at probably the most important transaction of their life and, uh, you know, wanting some face to face time. So it did include some travel. Uh, overseas, uh, included many calls at awkward times of the day where you might be waking up in the morning and hopping on a Zoom call and then going back to bed or, you know, trying to manage that schedule. And from the, from the language issue, it's, you know, although all their dealings with customers would primarily be in English because they were dealing on a global basis and that was sort of the universal business language, all of their internal documents. So we're talking German financial statements and German employment contracts. And, you know, most of the type of due diligence information you get, I was getting German documents. So I had to really rely on translation services and Google app. I mean, saved my life on this transaction, just being able to take pictures of documents and have them translated uh, what? Would, would help me. But, but everything took longer because of that, you know, just to have to translate and, and read and understand some of the differences there. So there were some real practical challenges. And, uh, and so a bit of a uh, hesitation, I guess, to answer your question of jumping into it, just uh, about yeah. how that whole thing would unfold. 
But I would imagine, you know, something that you were excited about, you know, at the same time, because, you know, not having done it, now you can say we've done one, um, you know, have that experience and probably learn from all the things that happen, good, bad, or indifferent on the next opportunity you get, maybe from the same referral source or another country. So I got to imagine yeah. you're excited at the same time. Yeah, big, big time. I mean, now that it's finished, it was looking back, it was, you know, one of the most fun, if not the the most fun on a transaction I've had uh, really helped that I really liked the clients, you know, just as people and, you know, you work with them so long for a couple of years that, you know, you become friends with them too through the transaction. And uh, so it, it was a great experience, good learning experience. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not actively prospecting in the region still, but it, it, it also shows you what a small world this is when, when we set out in this transaction and we're thinking, you know, who's going to, who's going to be the right fit as a investor buyer in this company? Uh, you know, we're, we're talking to companies in Asia and Australia and Europe and North America and South America. So you really, you know, you realize what a small world it is in this space. And I, I think part of the buyers and feeling comfortable with us appreciated that and that, you know, this buyer could be from anywhere. It's, it's unlikely to be in our backyard actually for this transaction they're doing work all over the world. So for them, that the importance of having an advisor geographically right next to them just wasn't as important as having somebody that they trusted and were comfortable with. So it worked in our favor on this one. Yeah. And um, tell me, you know, you guys being a member of Cornerstone International Alliance, how did maybe that help you um, in, in this, this inter international deal that spanned across multiple countries, whether it be the ultimate buyer or all the prospecting on, on what buyers might look like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I won't just say this because uh, I'm talking to you, Nick, but it definitely helped it back in the early stages of uh, pitching to them. And uh, I, I for sure incorporated Cornerstone International into my pitch deck and talked to them about, uh, you know, I, if we were just a standalone M&A firm without sort of the power of being part of a larger group, would we still ha have had this opportunity? I'm, I'm not sure. I think that definitely played in well to, uh, uh, and, and it's the truth of the alliance. I mean, the fact that we can have access to, what is it, 30 odd firms who are uh, like us across the world. Um, so if I do run into issues in Europe, for example, about how, you know, certain, certain uh, you, you know, deal structure nuances that we may not be as used to, I can, bounce it off of some CIA partners. And there was questions like that, that would come up along the way that I would uh, bounce off somebody else who may have been experienced, whether it was in the geographical area or whether it was on a deal in this industry. Um, you know, we, you know, there's always, as you would know, Nick, there's uh, lots of conversations happening daily basis, you know, best practices and helping each other out. So, so that was, uh, yeah, that was definitely a good, sort of arrow in our quiver to be able to uh, talk about CIA. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, in, in that industry, why don't you, uh, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, your client, what industry were they in, you know, what kind of buyer were they looking for um, and what were they maybe trying to get out of this transaction? Yeah. Yeah. So from, I mentioned it, it wasn't a retirement play. So <clears throat> from the start, it was always about growth and, uh, you know, finding a partner that can really help bring them to the next level. So they were, the, the industry they were in was uh, manufacturing, uh, you know, very uh, technically advanced equipment for the food industry. So uh, 
think like uh, inspection technology, you know, machinery that can uh, you 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 put it in a processing line for a food product to go through and detect for materials uh, whether a product you know do quality control on products. So uh, it was uh, yeah they, they were really at the point where they saw benefit in being part of a group that could maybe help them grow more of a global distribution network, sales network, bolster up their team, uh, be a part of something bigger, you know, that sort of mindset. So the the options we were evaluating in a buyer profile that kind of made sense was somebody who you know could be a strategic buyer, somebody who is doing, you know, a similar type of complementary product to what they're doing uh, to become part of something else or a financial type of buyer that really want to lend some more horsepower and uh, and what we ultimately found in a buyer was really a, a hybrid sort of between the two is financially backed buyer with that was growing a strategic portfolio in the space. So very interested in the technology and interested in, uh, in the space they were in and food processing, but backed by a private equity type of, of buyer. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was sort of the profile we set out for. And, uh, what we found, I would say twice because <laughs> We, uh, we kind of had to do the deal twice, as we talked about before we logged on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so how, how, so I guess, tell us about the first buyer. How did, how did, how did that, you know, come to, you know, fruition? And then how did inevitably, I guess, the deal not, not happen? Yeah, yeah. So just to I'll give a bit of context to open it up, I guess, because we were talking about it before uh, we started, Nick, but we started the process in early 2022. So going back a couple of years ago, and uh, I would say, you know, if you would look at it outside, looking in, it was textbook M&A process, a very smooth deal. We had a great list of options and candidates we were looking at, identified a really good candidate that we liked. Uh, <clears throat> I won't make it too specific, but North American uh, buyer with some global activities uh went down the road with them and uh got very very far down the road you know even having purchased sale agreements negotiated and uh and everything going very well uh until i would say you know probably eight months nine months into the process uh now that's not that long of a due diligence process but if you factor in the time from when we started you know got all our ducks in a row went out to market and found a buyer and uh, you know, and then went through due diligence, everything pretty much finished. And I, I really would say it was 11th hour. We were very near the finish line and I would have given this transaction a 95% plus chance of closing in late 2022. Uh, I still remember it was mid-September, got a call from the buyer group we were working with and they essentially told me that they, you know, they had a board meeting recently and uh, we're going to hit pause on this and totally caught me off guard. It was just like, did not see it coming at all and came to learn that um, it, it was really nothing to do with the company itself that spooked them or that gave them any issues. You know, due diligence was all good and clean and probably, you know, cleaner than most that I'm on and no skeletons in the closet. Everything was good. And uh, it was really probably the first time that I had that happen where it was because of external conditions to the business, nothing to do with the business. It was, it was really what was happening in the world uh, and, and, and that effect on some of their other companies. So 
we were having, uh, you know, Russia-Ukraine war going on. There was tensions in China and Taiwan with supply chain uh, issues, uh, ri you know, rising costs of capital in North America and elsewhere. Uh, you know, lots of talk about we going into a recession and, you know, all of these things that gave them concern about executing dollars, you know, on new acquisitions versus making sure their house was in order on their existing companies and platforms. So I think they were starting to see, you know, not not as aggressive as of activity on some of their other companies and uh, just wanting to make sure that dollars were more so devoted to what they had under their tent right now, uh, as opposed to bringing on new things. So, so it wasn't even a, I, I wouldn't say it was as much of a, no, we're not interested as a, we're not ready right now. And we'd mm -hmm. like to pause and reconsider in the future, but, but that future date was uncertain. And we you know we didn't know if we were going to be waiting a month or six months or a year, or if it would ever come back around. So, so we had, uh, you know, lots of conversations back and forth with them. And ultimately in, uh, I think it was October, 2022, we decided to, uh, part ways and you know we're, we're going to have to, uh, you know, consider other options. And so, you know, part of ways mutually decided and, and and that just uh yeah kind of felt like a punch to the gut to be honest of uh having to restart because you, you went through a good process and everything was was good and you're doing everything that you think you're supposed to be doing and then something happens outside of your control so so it was it was tough but we uh we, we basically sort of picked ourselves back up and uh almost a year later uh you know it, we talked about early 2022. Now we're in, you know, the holidays and then early 2023, uh, we, we started to re-engage of a uh, new, new party and, uh, you know, ultimately through that found, found, uh, the, the new, the, the, who would eventually be the new, the new buyer. And, and then we closed in October, 2023. So it was all, it was all almost exactly to a year later, uh, where we ran through the process twice. So it was a lot of work, but, uh, very happy, I guess, in the end with the, the buyer. I think we, who, the buyer the second time around, by the way, ended up being a European buyer. So uh, it's kind of funny having a North American M&A firm involved in what, what ended up being a European to European buyer seller transaction. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great fit in the end and uh, very happy buyer seller with, with where it ended up. Yeah. I want to get back to the, the ultimate buyer, but you know, going back to the first time they told you, you know, we got to put a pause on it. What was going through your mind and how did you handle that? Um, Cause that was said a year's pretty much a year's worth of work that uh, you, your highest of highs and the lowest of lows all in a matter of a one conversation, you know, take us through yeah. how you handled that. Yeah. I, I, it was, uh, yeah, it was a tough, tough phone call because I, you know, I thought, I thought the call was just, you know, you know, this is the buyer you're talking to every other day or every week <clears throat> as the file gets closer to the finish line. And, you know, I was expecting it to be called just another due diligence question or something like that come up and then they, they hit you with that news. So I remember thinking, uh, I'm really not looking forward to calling my client, uh, after, after that. So, you know, after I hung up the phone, I had to call our client right away and fill them in on what was going on. And, you know, fortunately, it's just, uh, you know, they were, they were shocked, uh, like I was, but, but they, they took the news relatively well. I, I, you know, they, they just, just that, 
I think that was one of the things we we liked about the client. They were just always level-headed. Uh, you know, their their approach was sort of, hey, listen, outside of our control. I think I think they were less emotional about it than I was. I was more worked up, and and they were more. Jeff, it's okay, it's okay. So it was kind of a funny uh, dynamic, but. Um, no, they kind of just said, you know, listen, hey, it's everything happens for a reason and uh, we'll get through it. And we'll find another, uh, you know, we'll start looking at other options. So very, uh, I'd say they, they sort of helped me uh, through that as well. And uh, we're still motivated to keep it going, uh, which was which was great. Yeah, that's 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 awesome, because it could go the other way where you have a client who's very upset um, and yeah. make it you know, difficult to kind of re-engage and go through another process and find another buyer. Um, so it sounds like, and I would imagine, you know, that was, you know, I'm speculating, but I'm knowing you, I'm guessing it's the, the case that over the time that you spent with them over the last year, building that rapport, that trust, um, working with them, have all the conversations that, you know, they, they had confidence in you and your team that, you know, even though this is a big bump in the road, you know, a, you know, definitely a curveball that uh, you weren't expecting that, you would you would get you know another buyer and it would it would inevitably you know come to the conclusion that you both wanted it to um, and so when that happened you know did you guys go through and kind of reset everything or was there stuff that you had already prepared whether it was the target buyers list or the marketing materials or whatever because I would imagine you had to tell other other buyers you know we got we're not going with you or you know this is off market or due diligence but take you know how did you what did you have to do and how did you guys you know kind of re-energize the deal and go out to find another buyer yeah it's a good question so we you know when we first talked to parties and went out there was there was multiple people interested in this and uh and so we had to tell people thanks for you know your interest but no we're going with somebody else so your natural starting point might be to, uh, you know, as one party drops off, go back to the number two or the number three and who else had interest there that you can talk to. And, and, and we did, we had conversations with, uh, that, that was kind of a first step we took to have conversations with some parties that uh, had interest before, but I've learned over the years, this business is all about timing and, uh, you know, time, you know, those parties had either moved on or timing wasn't quite right for them. Yeah. Uh, they might have said, you know, ch check back with me next year or just, you know, not not ready to make a quick decision now. So so we uh, the story of how we kind of found the eventual buyer is it's really a story of having good luck, uh, I guess. And I, I wish more buyers could come across us like this. But uh, I really have to credit my clients on the second buyer more than I can credit myself. And, and the reason is, is, uh, they were, you know, in the, in the, it was all sort of serendipitous how it happened, but in the, in the fall after this happened, uh, they were up at a trade show in their industry and got introduced to a party uh, or a party had reached out to them, you know, who was very interested in the technology that they had and, uh, and, and mentioned that they had an investor group who were considering building a thesis around a new platform. In, in and around the technology and the equipment they were building. And, you know, they saw application for it in a few different industries, but we're, we're considering, you know, its youth and its use in uh, healthcare or recycling or food and food processing where my client was more based in was one of the thesis on this platform investment that they were building on. So they were actively going through a process of trying to 
sort of lands, landscape the globe and say, who are companies who are industry leaders in this space that we should be talking to? And uh, uh, when they came across my clients, uh, you know, really piqued their interest. So that's when my client kind of came back to me and said, listen, I don't know if this is capable buyer or qualified or anything, but, you know, let's let's talk to them and see where it goes. So they were based in Nordic uh, Europe and, uh, you know, very quickly after meeting them, uh, we realized these guys are the real deal. They're very capable. They had they, they weren't a new private equity type fund, so they did have other platforms and investments. Uh, big, uh, I would say, play on sustainability, uh, you know, investing in the future. So their mindset was more so looking at, you know, the world, if it's going to be 10 billion people by 2050 or whatever, you know, we're going to be feeding the world and we're going to have to produce food more efficiently and more sustainable way and, you know, reduce yield and increase quality. And so everything that my client was doing in that space really ticked the boxes of what they were looking for as well. So really hit it off with them. And uh, yeah, I remember, I remember flying over to Austria and they were coming down and sitting down in the room with them. And uh, when I got back to Canada and people asked, how was my trip to Austria? I said, well, the inside of the hotel I was at was nice because that's pretty much all I saw because I went there and we, or we sat in a room and we just hashed out for a full day and then picked up the next morning how this could work and sort of had a whiteboard and just very cool experience actually and not typical to how we'd be doing things but we really you know i remember being up with a whiteboard and and chart and just mapping out the deal and just saying here's how this here's you know very good transparent open honest conversation between both groups which i which i think set the stage very well from the start but we really mapped out how that transaction could look and benefits talked openly about pros and cons from both sides uh, and left that, left that meeting. And, and I, I remember, I remember looking at my client and I, I said, I think this, I think this is it. I think these are the ones like this, this is, it just, it felt that good of a fit. So, so that was, yeah, you know, early in 2023. And then, uh, you know, we had to hash out an offer uh, to sort of formalize it coming out of that. And, uh, due diligence sort of over the summer, late spring, summer, and got to close in the fall with that group. So it was, uh, it was good. I wish that was the first time around, not the second, not the second time around, but, uh, you know, everything happens for a reason. I think like my client told me when things fell through and it all worked out in the end. And, you know, that's, that's what you want as an M&A advisor is you want the best deal possible for your client. And that doesn't always yeah. mean, you know, the first one, it doesn't always mean the to make a dollar there's a lot of other things that play into that and it sounds like especially when a, a yeah. client who wants to grow and you know is not looking to get out because they're retiring you know they have to work with these individuals and to continue to grow the company so for, for, for his, uh, probably double the amount of time for, uh, for you and them uh, working out uh, best case scenario right? yeah for sure and, and what was interesting is you mentioned the price and that's important but it's not everything. And uh, especially if you're staying on in uh, ownership position, and this is more of a partnership with a new investor, then you want to be confident who you're going to the dance with is the party that's going to get you from A to B, you know, in the best way possible. So, you, you know, that, that second exit, whatever that looks like, whenever that, whenever that is, uh, is, you know, that much better. 
at the end. And uh, w- one thing that was really interesting in this case for for my client was also that this was a new platform. So it wasn't it wasn't like you're coming on at uh, you know one company at the end of a platform deal. Uh, it, it was really that since they were in the early stages of building this, uh, they had more opportunity to help help it grow and see the direction that it was going to go. So. So my client has ultimately moved up to be, you know, sort of CEO of that platform group, as opposed to uh, not just that company and be a part of something that's going to be, be bigger, better and continue to grow. So it was, yeah, for a whole lot of reasons, it was uh, just attractive. And, you know, although the price was good, it was lots of other things beyond that as well. Well, and no, so you're a North American M&A firm. You had your client in Austria and your seller in Europe as well. Um, not a common mix, I don't, I don't imagine. But um, from that, you know, being, you know, in a, a different country, let alone, you know, continent, um, what did you learn from this whole experience that, you know, really you could take to, you know, to the next one? Let's say your, your consulting referral source has another you know, European-based company, like, what did you learn during this process that'll help you in the next one? Yeah, I think what was eye-opening to me was, uh, like I I mentioned before, that there's a lot of similarities, but there are some distinct differences to how deals, I would say, are done over there, Uh, you know, from a technical perspective and different regulatory environments and so forth. And and there's some things that that I went through on that deal that I would take back and say, you know, why isn't this a North American standard that we do things this way? So we, we, there's a lot of deals and I would say in North America, it's almost like a recipe for here's how you should do a deal. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, you look at different thresholds for how purchase sale agreements can be negotiated and where commercially reasonable terms are. And I, I think <clears throat> my approach that I learned from that, that I'll take to other deals is, just because it's done one way all the time doesn't mean it's the right way to do it or, or the way you have to do it. Uh, you know, a couple examples that come to mind are on uh, in European deals, uh, this, just getting in a bit of technical weeds here, but, but I remember one case where we we're talking about liability caps and thresholds on the deal and the purchase sale agreement negotiating it. And, and I, of course, am wearing my North American hat and, you know, I, I looked at North American deal studies of what regular thresholds and uh, and liability caps are, and and, and and to give you a data point, in the U.S., ninety-seven uh, percent, I think it is, of deal caps are set at under 22 percent of the purchase price, and sixty percent are under ten percent, and there's virtually in in, in the deal stats deal studies I've looked at. Uh, there's almost no U.S. deals that were done in the last year or two in in, in 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 the deal studies I looked at, which are a couple thousand deals that had a cap of the full purchase price amount. But in Europe, that's still common practice that about a third of deals have liability caps that are up to the full purchase price. And about 15 percent have liability caps, uh, only 15 percent of liability caps under 10 percent, which is the North American norm. So as we're negotiating some of the you know technicalities of the share purchase agreement, I really had to look at you know there's a distinct stand, uh, difference in standards between some of those in Europe and uh, and North America. Uh, same thing with things like material adverse change clauses. Ninety eight percent of U.S. deals have them. Thirteen percent of European deals have them. 
it's a distinct difference. Uh, yeah. There's a uh, around working capital, like uh, you know, working capital. We we talk all the time about issues and challenges uh, with with defining and uh, setting working capital pegs. And uh, you know, one one learning or experience that I had going through a European deal is in in North America, almost all deals are under what's called a completion account method or what's called a closed account method. We don't even call it that because it's so common that that's just the way it's done, which mm. essentially at the simplest means, uh, you know, from a working capital standpoint, you're going to set a working capital target uh, at the plan closing date. You're going to have your uh, estimation of what working capital actually is at that closing date and have a, you know, a true up that happens at that time. So, Let's say your working capital was a million dollars and your estimated at closing is 1.1. Well, there might be a $100,000 adjustment to the purchase price. Uh, and then at that point, it's just an estimate. And then there's a closing set of financial statements that is, that's done at a period afterwards. So let's say three months after closing, final financial statements are reconciled and there's another true up of working capital. So that's that's a method that we're used to as M&A advisors here, the completion the account method in North America. In the European, uh, though, I've come to learn that that's not the norm. What's What they use is something totally different called lockbox method. And I'm sure some people on the listening in may have heard that, but we really don't see it very often in North America. And uh, without going into too much details, it could probably be a whole other call just on this subject, but uh, lockbox really uh, the, the economic benefits and costs transferred to the buyer at the, at the t time of the lockbox date. So the lockbox date could be the last fiscal year end or it could be the closing of the LOI. But at, but at that lockbox date, any fluctuations in the working capital up or down are to the benefit or the cost of the buyer. And there's no need for purchase price adjustments post-closing. Now, not all, all European transactions are done that way, but uh, it was really interesting to go through that and see you know, working capital wasn't an issue on that transaction at all because it was negotiated up front and any mm -hmm. changes weren't going to have an adjustment to the purchase price afterwards. So mm -hmm. the issue wasn't, I, I find in, in North America, sometimes it's, you know, that issues kicked down the road a little bit and addressed later. Whereas uh, this was an interesting way to structure a deal that was very different uh, and, and really solved that issue in the case of that transaction. So, just between you know liability caps and material adverse change conditions and lockbox first completion, like those are just a few examples to illustrate that there are some real technical differences as well that we learned in the structuring of deals uh, be between both and, uh, and and how some of that might come back to North America. Um, you know, something for me to watch now and know that those those type of things can be applied on transactions where where it may make sense. Yeah, that's that's great insight. And is that something that you're you're going to take into your North American based deals and try to work towards, or kind of not go back to old ways? But like I said, you hit on you kind of wish some of these European deal structure elements something were a common practice in North America. Is that kind of something you're going to try to do, or you just take it deal by deal? Yeah, kind of deal by deal. I I do think that. Uh... That the the lockbox, for example, method with working capital has its applications here in North America. Uh, 
you know, what, what it, what it essentially means if you're, you know, you do have to do more work upfront pre LOI and really doing diligence on the financials. But once you get comfortable with that, it, it really condenses the due diligence process post uh, LOI. So there may be cases I think where that's uh, interesting and applicable for deals. Uh, I think it, it makes me question some of the thresholds and things used of, you know, the, the, the studies we go to to say, well, most U.S. deals have this sort of cap or this sort of threshold or this, these baskets and, wow. you know, okay, that's great that that has been the historical, but it doesn't mean that since that precedence was set, that has to be the way that it is. So just re-questioning, I guess, for clients, a different perspective on where that right balance of risk tolerance should be uh, on a transaction. Uh, you know, I think I always take the perspective too. It's uh, it's deal by deal that if you get you know a really good price for your business, then maybe you're okay to take on a bit more risk in in some of the things. Whereas if you feel like you're crunched more on price, then maybe you want to get more favorable terms. So it's always a balancing act uh, there as well. But yeah, yeah, I guess Nick to answer your question, I just take it kind of case by case, and just having the knowledge that there's different ways of doing things. Uh, will make me question, I guess, uh, scrutinize maybe a bit more on purchase yeah. and sale agreements when I see them come across. Yeah. Awesome. Well, to recap real quick, you know, you went through this transaction where you represented a European buyer or a seller who ended up selling to a European buyer. Um, you know, what is just high level, like I said, kind of go back, because every deal is going to be different, right? So you can't necessarily yeah. take the playbook for this deal in, in you know cross border and do it for the next one but you know what are a couple of things that um you know high level you're going to remember you know from this experience um that uh that will help you in that next european based transaction you might do yeah it's a good question i mean we just talked about a little bit of it in terms of don't assume that the way things have always been done is the right way and uh i i find in uh in, in Europe, and, and again, I'm only basing this off of this one experience, so I'm making some generalizations and don't know if all deals this way, but I found the priorities in dealing with a European entity were were a bit different than a lot of my dealings with North American entities, that it was perhaps less scrutinizing on the historicals and more forward-looking on what's to come. So it was not as uh, maybe more conservative approach of, you know, not not having to dig into the financials and that hard sort of negotiating North American style of, uh, you know, trying to pick apart anything and negotiating on it. It was, it was very level-headed sort of respectful negotiations. Uh, a lot of talk throughout about forward looking as opposed to back looking and, uh, you know, due diligence was more focused on the management teams and HR and values and doing some ESG due diligence and stuff that, so I see the weighting of topics was a little bit different on this one. It was less on what I'm used to, which is this, there was still the tax due diligence and quality of earnings and financials and, you know, those boxes needed to be ticked, but uh, a more sort of friendly negotiation style, I would say from this one experience anyway. Um, yeah. So just, uh, you know, a different approach and mindset deals maybe. And I, I think a lot of that was able to be the case because, of the fit and the priority that we gave on not just worrying about the price, but working, worrying about the fit in this mm -hmm. case, uh, between the parties. So reinforces the importance of 
you're not just trying to find somebody at the best price. You know, you do gotta, you gotta have the full package. You gotta, have the, you gotta have the price, but you have to have the terms and you have to have the fit, especially when you're being in, 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 uh, involved in ownership, uh, it's the owner staying forward. So yeah, yeah. Just a different, a bit of a different perspective, uh, I guess on deals that uh, we're working on now. Yeah. Again, congratulations on c closing that, uh, well, you know, unique, uh, you know, setup on a deal that you don't see a whole lot. So, uh, congratulations yeah. on closing that opportunity. Um, yeah, really thank you. Thank you, Nick. We really appreciate you jumping on, uh, joining me on the show. Um, if, if anyone wants to learn more about you, Federation M&A, how they can get a hold of you, where they can work with you or find more information about the things that you're doing, um, where can our listeners find you? Group.ca uh, or .com is, uh, is a great resource to just see our team page and it has our contacts right on there. Uh, you can also find me, Jeff McKenzie, on LinkedIn as well. Uh, but my website and, uh, and bio and everything are on our website. So feel free to check us out. And uh, we, we do have uh, you know some content that you could subscribe to if you want to. We don't spam you, but if you want to get on a newsletter or anything and hear about the deals we have uh, on the go and, uh, you know, stories about what we've been working on, feel free to check us out on our website or LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you, Jeff. And that is all we have for this episode of the M&A Mastermind Podcast. Um, one thing that will help Jeff and myself out tremendously would be to like, share, comment uh, on this episode. and. Send it to anybody who you feel might benefit from the content that and the conversation that Jeff and I had today. Also, be sure to check out all of our episodes at cornerstoneia.com slash podcast. We hope you found this conversation beneficial and you can have a couple of takeaways and um, find some, uh, some uh, assurances in, um, if you're dealing with a cross-border deal that uh, Jeff experienced and hopefully you can adopt into, into what that might be for you and your clients. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care, everybody.